Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter, chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. This is the word of the Lord. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to imagine that you just bought a new car brand new car, you bring it home, and you have it sitting out in front of your house, or it's in your driveway, or just parked out in front of your house, and you've driven it for a few months, but it's still a new car to you. And you come out of your house one morning to find two men opening up the doors to your new car and getting into the car. And your first reaction, obviously, is grab the cell phone, call 911, but you say to them, hey, hey, what are you doing with my car? And they reply, the Lord needs it. <laughs> How do you respond? Tell me more, Tell me more right? <laughs> What's that mean, right? You know, so forth. But that's exactly what was happening that day as, as Jesus was making his trek with his disciples up from Jericho to Jerusalem to celebrate in the temple, they were making their way and they had come up to Bethany and Bethphage and probably the disciples went ahead to untie a young colt, a brand new donkey, probably still with its mother. They came to untie it and when they came and the owner of the donkey came to them and said, what are, you, what are you doing? They said, the Lord needs it. And the person responded, okay, go ahead. Would that have been your response? Would that have been what you had done on that, that day? But that's exactly what it done. Probably because the owner of the donkey, the colt, maybe knew Jesus, or maybe he had heard or she had heard about Jesus because he had raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, not too far away. So Jesus' fame and well-known, he is already well-known and known well in the whole region that they were in as they're making their way up the temple, the Mount of Olives. Now, some of you are looking at this going, he did it backwards. I'm actually thinking in Hebrew. Hebrew is red, 
uh, from right to left, by the way. But this is also how the map lays. This is how the elevation lays in Israel. And as they were making their way, if it's 15 to 17 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, 3,000 feet of elevation, it's not an easy walk. And so Jesus gets on the, but I, I, on the, gets the colt there probably between Bethany and Bethphage, and he's getting on there. But I imagine that the disciples, they go and they ask for this colt, and they don't ask Jesus, like, what's going on? <laughs> they just do it. They just obey. They just listen to Jesus, and they go to him, and they get the colt. But I can also imagine that as they're bringing the colt back to Jesus, they're getting a little excited. I don't know if you know that, but they're getting a little excited about what's about to happen because for three years, Jesus has been saying to them, hey, keep, keep everything on the down low. Keep it on the DL. You know, Don't tell people too much about me. Like, Don't share about who I am with other people. I want you to keep it a secret. But this is the moment the disciples have been waiting for. This is the moment where they've been starting, they're starting to get excited. This is the moment where Jesus is going to get on a colt and ride into Jerusalem as king. Maybe that's what they've signed up for all along. That they've been waiting for this moment when Jesus would take charge of Jerusalem and take back the city of God for God's people. That's what they had been hoping for. This was their moment. They're starting to get excited. So if you can imagine them bringing the colt back to Jesus, and Jesus is getting on it, and they, the first people to take off their coats, their cloaks, are the disciples to lay it on the colt as Jesus gets on it. So they're a bit excited. But can you imagine the audacity of Jesus to get on the colt and ride into Jerusalem? Now why do I say this? Because at this point... He's an outlaw. They've got a warrant out for his arrest. They want to kill him, arrest him, and kill him along with Lazarus at this point. And so here is Jesus, the one who's got a warrant for his arrest, the outlaw who's getting on a colt to ride in and proclaim himself king. He's about to go public with his kingship. But can you imagine that if a, a criminal, an outlaw, a wanted man, we're to get on and publicly ride into our city and say, here I am. <laughs> wow. He's not hiding anymore. Can you imagine the courage it took, the, the boldness it took Jesus to get on the colt and ride into Jerusalem even though they wanted to kill him? And as he's ascending the, the uh, mountaintop, as he's going up, we can leave the the uh, image up there of the ascent. But as he's going up the Mount of Olives, he's still ascending. And as he's ascending, what the pilgrims are doing, because there are thousands of other people walking alongside of him and disciples, and they're walking to all to Jerusalem together to celebrate him. You can imagine they're taking off their coats, right, their cloaks, and they're laying them down before Jesus. And what they're doing in that act, what they're doing is they're saying, you're our king. We're the one, we want you to be our king. We want you to be the king of Jerusalem. What they're doing is they're actually saying to Jesus, 
you're our king. Can you imagine the audacity of the pilgrims to proclaim him king in the face of a Roman occupying army, in the face of King Herod, the puppet king of the Jewish people, who are already in power in Jerusalem, the audacity of these pilgrims to lay down their coats as a symbol that they were proclaiming that Jesus was going to be their king in the face of those types of political power. Can't imagine what it was like for them. And Jesus is still going up the mountain. So Jesus goes up, and as I can imagine, I imagine that just as Jesus gets to the top of the mountain, because he's been traveling quite a few miles, 3, 000, over 3,000 feet of elevation, they finally get to the mountaintop, to the top of the Mount of Olives. Gets there. And then the people begin to cry out and begin to praise God. And they begin to shout Psalm 118, a verse from Psalm 118, which says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name. That would have been a traditional psalm, a traditional saying as they came into Jerusalem. But can you imagine the audacity of the disciples because I don't know if you picked up on it in the text, they changed the psalm. They change one word in the psalm. They begin to say something different in this psalm and in this saying. They change the ancient text. The audacity of them to change the scripture. And they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king so now they are proclaiming Jesus to be the king. They have changed the ancient text and they have said Jesus is the king and he is, blessed is, the, is him, the king who comes in the name of the Lord to Jerusalem. And they do this and notice the immediate reaction of the Pharisees. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. The Pharisees who are also walking to Jerusalem, going to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they don't go to the disciples who are saying this. They go to Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, the master, and they say to Jesus, can you tell them to shut up? And it's not that the Pharisees are not like, I don't think they're, they're, they're being bad. I don't think they're trying to be disruptive, but they're worried because they're worried about the Roman government. They're worried about King Herod. They're worried about the political instability that's going to come to this place, to come to Jerusalem this week, if Jesus and his disciples march in saying that he's the king. They're fearful. The Pharisees are concerned. These typically maybe aren't the Pharisees in Jerusalem we hear about later in the story in Easter week. These are some other Pharisees who were probably just walking, making their pilgrimage from somewhere else, and saying, hey, you need to tell these guys to be quiet. You're going to cause a political uproar in Jerusalem if you don't tell them to shut up. Can you imagine? And what does Jesus do? <laughs> the audacity of Jesus <laughs> to say, I could tell them, but you know what will happen? Stones will begin to say it. So it doesn't really matter what you say or what I say because God's up to something here. And you can't stop God. You can't stop what God is doing. You can't get in the way of what God is doing. Whether we say it or not, God is going to continue to do what God's going to do. And so God 
continues, the stones would have even cried out. And I can imagine that as they get to this point, this is really at the top of the Mount of Olives. This is really the spiritual high point of the day. I mean, can you imagine the disciples are excited, the people are excited. This is literally a mountaintop experience. They have reached the summit and they can see Jerusalem from the summit of Mount Olives. Mount Olives sat 300 feet above Jerusalem and you could see Jerusalem from the top of the mount. And as they're getting over the top of the mount and as they're coming down, they're rejoicing. It's a spiritually high moment, exciting moment. Everybody's excited. The king is coming. But there's one person who's not excited. There's one person who's not rejoicing. And who's that? It's Jesus. Jesus is weeping. Jesus actually stops and he looks at the city and he begins to weep. And he weeps because he's saying to Jerusalem, I came to bring you peace. And you rejected it. I came to bring you compassion and healing, and you rejected it. And he's weeping because of the rejection of the people of Jerusalem. He's weeping because they have rejected his kingship. He's weeping because if you remember when he instructed his disciples earlier in the Gospels, He told them that when you go into a town, when you go into a village, speak peace to that village, speak peace to that town. And if they receive you, if they speak peace back to you, stay there, share the gospel with them, heal them, bring good to that place. He says, but if you go to that city or that village or that town and you speak peace to it and you don't get peace in return, what did he say? He said, shake the dust off your sandals and leave. This is Jesus shaking the dust off his sandals and leaving our world. He's saying, I gave you peace, I presented peace, I offered peace, but I did not get peace in return. Time to shake the dust off my sandals and go. And so he's weeping, he's disappointed, he's rejected. But not only that, He also sees the future of Jerusalem. He sees the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years from that moment. 40 years into the future, he can see that when the emperor Titus will come and march again upon the city of Jerusalem and siege it and destroy it and destroy the temple once and for all. So he can see the total destruction of Jerusalem also in that moment. And so he weeps for the people of Jerusalem because he can see what's about to happen. He knew this would happen. It's interesting because to this day, there are Jewish pilgrims standing today at a place called the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall, where they weep because the temple is no more. People are still weeping today the same way that Jesus wept on that day. They're still weeping over the loss of the place, the house of God. But we know that Jesus is the new temple. 
and we rejoice with that. But imagine the weeping and misrejoicing, the audacity of this king to weep when everybody else is celebrating. So Jesus makes his descent along with the pilgrims, along with the disciples, and they enter in possibly through the east gate into Jerusalem. And they enter in, and at some time later after he gets off the colt, and we assume hopefully they returned it to its owner like good disciples. But they get into the, then Jesus moves into the temple, and we didn't hear this read this morning, but he moves into the temple, and he goes into the temple, and for the first time we see Jesus lose it, so to speak. You know, he's been to the temple before. He's, he's been there before. He's seen what's happening in the temple with the money changers and the sellers of sacrifice and He's seen what's been happening in the Gentile court, and he's seen this time and time again, year after year, as he's made his pilgrimages to Jerusalem. He's seen this since he was 12. This has been going on. But for some reason, this time he gets upset. For some reason, this time, as he comes as the king, when he comes as the king, he goes into the temple, and he says, enough is enough. You know, what was going on? Well, What was going on was that to enter into the temple, every pilgrim had to pay a temple tax of half a shekel. And half a shekel was about two days' wages, but the Jewish temple tax could only be paid in Jewish coin that had no image on it. And the Roman coin had an image on it, didn't it? It had the image of the emperor on it. So people, as they brought their coin to the temple to pay the temple tax, had to exchange do an exchange to the Jewish coin to pay their temple tax. And guess what the interest was on that? 16, anywhere from 16 to 30% interest on that exchange. Kind of like our credit card companies today. Wouldn't you like to turn that table over? Right? We kind of laugh about it today, but this was serious stuff for Jesus. So that's going on. But the other thing that was happening was that then people had to bring animal sacrifices at this time to the temple. And so for a poor, let's, let's take the, a, a, poorest, a poor person in that culture would have purchased two doves. Like Mary and Joseph, when they come and present Jesus at the temple, they purchased two doves. And when they purchased two doves, those two doves outside the temple cost half a shekel as well, two days wages. But if you brought these two doves from outside the temple into the temple for sacrifice, the high priest had set up sacrifice inspectors. Temple inspectors who would look at your sacrifice and deem whether it was worthy to be offered or not, whether it was without blemish or not. And so then the temple inspectors could say to you, "Uh, guys, this isn't a pure sacrifice. You need to go get another one. So you've just wasted half a shekel. But thanks to the high priest in the temple, you know, thank you, high priest. The high priest in the temple, they decided to put pre-approved, pre-blessed sacrifices of animals in the temple. So that when you came to the temple, you didn't have to buy doves outside the temple. You could get pre-approved, already inspected sacrifices in the temple itself. Have you ever been to a baseball game? Have you ever like gone and gotten a hot dog before you got into the game, right? And it costs one thing outside the stadium, but when you get in the stadium, well, guess what? This is not new. 
the, the, the baseball stadium stole it from the temple high priests. <laughs> because when they came in, they would charge 12 times the amount for that sacrifice. So instead of paying half a shekel, you're paying six shekels for the same two doves. I think Jesus had had enough. I think Jesus had said, you're taking advantage of the poor. And who set up this whole system to begin with? The high priest. These were called the booze of Annas, the high priest. (laughs) But the other thing that Jesus, I think, said enough is enough is because these tables and these booze were set up in the temple in one particular court. Because the high priest wouldn't let this happen in the Jewish court of the men or the Jewish court of the women. The court that they put all these booze in, all these tables in, and more and more in every year after year after year was the Gentile court. And so there was no place for the Gentiles who were coming to worship God. Because their court, their place of worship had been filled up with money changers and sacrifice sellers So Jesus, that's why he says this is to be a house of prayer. You've taken this court of the Gentiles and you've made it a business. And so he comes in there as the king. And can you imagine the audacity of Jesus to, to come in and start flipping over tables and tossing money everywhere and doves flying out of cages sheep bleeding, running off into the temple. There it's, it becomes chaos. It's no wonder that later on Thursday when they arrest him, guess who comes to arrest him? The temple police. Because they didn't do it when he came and turned over the table. They should have done it that time. They should have come and gotten him right then and arrested him, but they were afraid of the people. So they come in the darkness of night. They make an exchange with Judas. They get pay, pay Judas to come and betray him on, back on the Mount of Olives in the darkness of a garden where nobody else can see. They go and they arrest him. The temple police do, not the Romans. And the temple police take him where? Where is the first place Jesus goes? He goes and he's brought before the high priest. I wonder why. I wonder why they brought him there. Maybe it's because of what happened in the temple. They said, we're not going to have it. No more of this king. And so they make a plan to get rid of him. You know, I think about that moment after they get the tables turned on them, so to speak. I wonder what they'll do with them next. (laughs) I mean, what do they do with people that that stand up and stand out? They still do it to people today, don't they? That any time anybody has the audacity to stand up and to stand out, People crucify them. People want to get rid of them. I think that's what they'll do to him this week, right? 
They make plans not only to arrest him, but they make plans to crucify him. And they, and they come up with it, they design it, they come up with a plot, and they crucify him. And that's what happens this week that we call Holy Week. But what's the question for us today? What do we have? Great story, Matt. What now? Well, here's the question I think we need to think about. Do you and I, do we have the audacity to follow our king? Do you and I have the audacity, the courage, the boldness to do what Jesus did in the world that wants to get rid of him? Because I will tell you, we live in a world that wants to marginalize Jesus, get rid of Jesus, have nothing to do with Jesus, maybe because they don't understand who Jesus is, or maybe they do understand who Jesus is, and it's too hard for them to see Jesus, and so they want to get rid of Jesus. The question for us as followers is, do we have that audacity? Do we have the audacity to make Jesus our king? to lay our coats down, to say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, this week I was getting a lift ride back to church, and I was talking to the driver, and I, I'm always amazed at how God sets these things up. But I'm having a conversation, and I, I, didn't, I didn't evoke this conversation, I just asked him about what he did besides drive lift cars and he got talking about his startup business, but he talked, then began telling me about courage. He started talking to me about courage and how cur- you need courage, that, that really the, the great leaders, the great people in this world have courage. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you're right, that's good. And he started telling me about Gandhi and how much Gandhi wasn't really talented or smart, but he had a lot of courage. I said, yeah. And I was in India and I saw the statue and we had this conversation and then I remembered that the person who inspired Gandhi was Jesus. <laughs> so I said, you know who, who came before Gandhi? You know who had courage before Gandhi? And you know what we're going to celebrate this weekend? I'm getting ready to celebrate this idea that Jesus had the courage to proclaim himself king even though he was an outlaw. And he looked at me and says, yeah, great leaders have courage. And so even though we had different faiths, <laughs> We both agreed that our leaders had courage. And if we're to emulate our leader, if we're to follow our leader, then what are we called to do too? Have courage. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous is what was told to Joshua. Joshua. Another name for Jesus. Let's pray.